Welcome to the second in a continuing series on ontology and knowledge management and decision support. This is a collaboration between the Ontolog Group, the Federal Knowledge Management Working Group, and NASA. And we were really interested, those groups were interested in looking at the emergent intersection of knowledge management and the studies of the Ontolog Group, and specifically in relation to how those uh, activities and those groups and the principles and the theories that are emerging and the technologies that are being used uh, can enable better decision support um, across industry, but also within the government for the, the federal CAM working group folks. So our meeting um, last time looked at some of the challenges that NASA was facing to put some context around the idea of information and data management, um, categorically organizing information through ontologies, and uh, looking at multi-generational learning. We are holding these uh, meetings concurrently in a technology environment called Second Life, which is a virtual world. For those of you who are in-world, welcome very much. Uh, for those of you who would like to come in-world for our next one, just contact me, and I'll be happy to, to walk you through the process. Uh, just as an experimental way of looking at how to start bridging uh, real-world and virtual-world collaboration. So if you are on the telecon only, and here's some odd things about people who are in-world. It's referring to the group of people who are, are uh, participating through that virtual world as well. So um, today's uh, specific topic is really looking at, at the goal of this intersection exercise, which is the idea of making better strategic decisions. And part of that is really understanding the aspects behind decision support, behind um, looking at strategic analysis and the measurements of, of making sure that that can actually be analyzed. So our speakers today come from a wide variety of areas. Um, some of them, I think, are speakers, some are contributors. Uh, there's Ted Gordon from the Millennium Project, Adam Chayer from SRI, Ken Bukowski from Northeastern University, Patrick Cassidy from Micra, Dwayne Nickel from Adobe, Denise Bedford from the World Bank, and Jerome Glenn, again, from the Millennial Project. So um, we're ready to start the formal slides. Peter, did you want to do the abstract? We would not need to do the abstract since the abstract is already on the session page, and I hope everyone have had the chance to go through it. Maybe I will take over from here and start everyone on slide number three. This is what, what we're going to go through today. Uh, we'll have a brief introduction of the speakers. Then uh, we'll have Ted Gordon talk a little bit about uh, futures research, uh, what normative futures are, uh, Delphi and SOFI, which are some of the processes, uh, the methodology that is being employed in what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we are going to uh, talk about some of the key concepts, uh, a phase one project that was uh, uh, implemented a few years ago, uh, and then some of the things that are driving the next phase of the project uh, with a few particular uh, focus areas that uh, individual contributors will talk to and then talk about how we can architect uh, a co-evolving human-machine system uh, for in collective intelligence that forms the underpinning for this entire thinking. And then uh, we come back to look at how is this going to help us make 
better strategic decisions and Denise Bedford from the World Bank who is I mean the World Bank actually is a major uh, data source for some of the uh, numbers that go into the SOFI quantitative analysis and of course uh, she is the banner carrier of a lot of the work related to taxonomies, uh, ontologies, uh, and uh, in in the World Bank uh, databases, so she could give us a, an outside-in perspective on how this might work. So I'm moving on to slide number four. Uh, again, uh, Jean has already introduced uh, some of the contributors today, so I would not go into detail, but one thing I would like uh, to make a remark on is uh, the SOFI system project has been an open collaborative project, so all the contributors are actually acting on their own individual capacities and their affiliation stated above, uh, stated uh, for identification purposes only. Going on to slide number five, this introduces uh, the Millennium Project, so maybe I'll call upon uh, Jerome Glenn, uh Director of the Millennium Project, to uh, tell us what the Millennium Project is. Jerry? Yes, hello everyone. Uh, the Millennium Project, uh, quite simply, is a, a global think tank, uh, of, um, which is a combination of nodes or groups of individuals and institutions around the world who identify what they think is important, share it, and feed it back through a variety of software and management concepts. We've been around for about 11 years, uh, and we operate underneath the World Federation of UN Associations, and that's the UN's own NGO. There's thousands of NGOs compared to the UN, but this is the UN's own, which then gives us nice, easy access worldwide, but it's not official work, so none of the people here on the phone and, and in the uh, presentations here are official UN representatives, but we work underneath that umbrella. Uh, we produce the annual State of the Future report and a series of futures methodologies and special studies, including um, the State of the Future Index, which we'll talk about a lot today. This is not uh, Jeffrey Sachs's UN Millennium Project. That's a more recent phenomenon, and that was a short-lived one to do um, papers on how to address the eight million development goals. Uh, next slide uh, shows where some of these nodes are located uh, around the world. And uh, so imagine that each one of those can be uh, uh, various kinds of institutions, whether they're UN agencies or corporations or governments, but they're a cross-section of different uh, institutional categories because we're not trying to uh, base it just on universities or governments, but a combination of different institutions making each one of these things a little trans-institution, so to speak. Next slide. Uh, Peter, do we go, does that go into Ted's uh, recording? Before we go into Ted's uh, explanation of, of the futures methodologies as well as uh, Sophie, let me identify, make clear uh, two of the things that mainly will be what we're talking about. One is, of course, SOFI, uh, which is the acronym for State of the Future Index. Uh, this is a quantitative time series that indicates the changing state of the future uh, and shows whether conditions promise to get better or worse. So 
the index, like let's say you the Dow Jones Industrial Index is a number. A SOFI is actually a series of numbers spaced out, of course, uh, with a number for each year. And it takes collective numbers over the past 20 years and project out to the next 10 years. Uh, Ted will tell you more. Uh, originally, uh, Ted proposed this and implemented it as a Lotus spreadsheet. And uh, he wrote about the and described the method and his first application, uh, putting that to work on the state of the, the world uh, in the state of the future 2001 report. So we had the fir first World SOFI in 2001. And to date, besides the annual World SOFI, this index is also being compiled for, by countries like Turkey, China, South Korea, South Africa. Venezuela and uh, a range of other Latin American countries. So that's the first major center of focus for today's talk. But also important is a SOFI system. This would be a system that implements the SOFI not just for a single developer or a single researcher, but tries to open that up to a a range of contributors or to a much wider community. This effort started in 2002 with the intent to build this research from the Millennium Project and take it from the spreadsheet model to progressively develop, it, develop that into an internet-based future studies and analysis tool that is supported over an open knowledge system. And it was developed and deploying a community infrastructure so that the SOFI system can become a platform through which we can engage and harness both socio-economic research as well as technology inputs from a broad range of communities and contributors. So on that note, I will uh, start the talk by Ted, who will tell us more about is futures research, normative future, Delphi, and SOFI. Hello, everybody. I'm pleased that uh, I can join you this way by uh, means of uh, modern technology and be in two places at once. Um, I have a few, so this is Ted Gordon speaking. I have a few slides uh, that will <coughs> accompany uh, this audio. Um, we begin with a brief review of the purposes of futures research. There's no one who's serious in this field that believes that the future is completely knowable. Uh, and, and it's a reasonable question to ask. If, uh, if you can't get it right, you can't get it complete, why do it at all? Well, these, this slide, this first slide called Purposes of Futures Research, summarizes some of the main themes uh, that you would, I think, uh, elicit from uh, people in the field. Um, futures research helps understand what might be the panorama of possibilities. Uh, not only that, but a, um, a vector in futures research is to inquire about what ought to be and how we can achieve it through informed policy. Uh, to look for threats and opportunities along um, the path into the future and uh, by having an understanding of what plausible developments might occur uh, to develop uh, strategies. Uh, 
uh, and evaluate actions that we might take uh, to achieve the more desirable future. So you see the value of futures research lies less in forecasting accuracy, did we get the date right, did we even get the event right, than in the possibility of using this framework uh, to identify and assess new possibilities. Next slide. There are some uh, philosophical underpinnings to this work summarized on this chart. Uh, we, most of the people in the field would, would say they believe that the future can be shaped by policy. Future is not preordained. It's not written in the book. It's not, uh, we are not uh, fatalists, uh, but the future is uh, constructed by virtue of what it is we do or do not do. And furthermore, there are a range of possibilities uh, that are the aggregate of the strategies of individuals and institutions and governments uh, around the world. We believe that policy consequences can be systematically explored, but certainly that's a primitive exercise. Nevertheless, it's worth doing to ask if this particular path were followed, if this policy were enacted, where could it lead, and what unexpected consequences might flow from it. We don't think it's possible to get exact knowledge, no matter how big the machine or complex the model. Uh, but uh, we view the future in terms of probabilities, likelihoods, uh, so that so that the there there is an array uh, that stretches from an unlikely uh, future, productive perhaps, uh, desirable perhaps, to an unlikely future. Uh, which also might be uh, productive and desirable. And it's the job of the futurist to try and understand that spectrum. There's a con and, and the difficulty comes, one of the difficulties comes because uh, all of us understand that the future, no matter what we do, is unknowable. Uh, and it's, it's worth pointing out that this, uh, this construct of, of thinking ahead and asking what-if questions and that, that we pose in policy research, uh, is common to uh, most people's thoughts. Uh, when you uh, cross the street, see a car barreling down the street toward you, uh, the mind does a rapid scenario and says, uh, hell, if I don't move faster, I'm going to be involved in an accident. So what if work is much uh, is, is extremely important to this field. This next slide, titled Current, Key Current Methods, shows on the left a simple taxonomy of futures research methods, normative versus exploratory, and quantitative versus qualitative. Make a two-by-two two matrix from that, normative being uh, desirable futures, exploratory being uh, extrapolative futures, uh, quantitative uh, defining those futures in numerical terms, and qualitative in, uh, in uh, subjective terms. And the techniques that are used to do that exploration are m many and varied. I've listed five in the right-hand side of this chart, some of which we'll talk about in more detail. Uh, time series, Delphi's, scenarios, modeling, quantitative modeling, econometric modeling, for example, and uh, somewhat peripheral, but nevertheless worth including, is monitoring environmental change broader environment is what I mean here, uh, <coughs> to get a handle on uh, 
what what uh, what uh, what is changing, which directions are we going in, what are the threats that are mounting and the opportunities that are appearing. Next slide, please. And the frontiers of the methods and also uh, the agenda for my part of this talk. Uh, I'm going to talk about trend impact analysis, state of the future index, and real-time Delphi. Um, but also there are uh, methods that involve using expert groups to create scenarios and a technique that's uh, being developed at RAND called robust decision-making, which I believe has great promise. And on the frontiers of new concepts, uh, the search for methods for reducing the dimensions of the unknown uh, world that we face or will face. Uh, and out of all of this, a point I'll make finally, emerges a new kind of decision science, which after all uh, is our subject in this uh, seminar. The next slide titled Time Series Trend Impact Analysis is uh, meant to demonstrate this first frontier. Here we have a time series variable, infant mortality rate, lots of historical data, and very easy to extrapolate. Uh, the curves, uh, if we look at the global rates or national rates, the curves are very smooth. And the ability to fit a curve to those points is uh, quite, quite good statistically. But when we extrapolate that curve, we're making the implicit assumption that the forces that shape the past will continue to shape the future. And in the long run, that must be wrong. Uh, listed on the right are some future events which could affect the past trends. Uh, very long, very, very, very long-term low-cost contraceptives, for example. Um, standardized vaccinations of all uh, children. Uh, improved literacy of women, for example. Well, trend impact analysis is a technique that begins with the extrapolation of the variable, lists these future events as well as we can know them, assigns them probability of occurrence, which, are, which is a, 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 a scenario-dependent uh, variable, uh, and an impact, should those events occur, despite their low or intermediate probability, should those events occur, what would be their consequence for infant mortality? And trend impact analysis is a Monte Carlo solution. It's implemented using a Monte Carlo approach in which the events may or may not occur, uh, and uh, infant mortality is projected a thousand times, let's say, based on uh, combinations of those events. And what is produced ultimately through that kind of an analysis is a curve of the sort shown in the next slide, uh, titled Time Series Trend Impact Analysis. Here we see the history of infant mortality uh, over the last 20 years on a global basis, uh, and the extrapolation into the future. Uh, notice that it is uh, that those events that I showed on the previous page have the consequence of lowering the extrapolation um, even further, that is, improving, um, improving infant mortality. The next slide deals with the, the second method that I wanted to discuss called uh, Delphi, particularly real-time real Delphi, uh, beginning with uh, 1960s, the early 1960s, where the technique was developed at RAND uh, in answer to conference room 
problems. Get the experts together in a conference room, uh, and uh, they'll certainly come up with an answer. But the answer has a lot to do with the personalities, the clash of people in that conference room, who's published what, and so on. The classic has been used thousands of times in, in an array of subjects that, are, uh, that would fill a book. Uh, what's common to the method, and it's, it's appropriate as proper application, is the anonymity of the respondents, that is, not assigning any particular answer to a particular participant, and feedback of the answers, particularly those at the margin, to the group as a whole, the reasons why people hold positions that are different than the average. Um, the criticism of Delphi is that it drives you toward an average. That's true because the people at the extremes usually have to work a little bit harder. Uh, and uh, the application of Delphi today is less concerned uh, in most instances with uh, the consensus than it is with developing the reasons for disagreement because it's those reasons on which uh, policy might be based. Now, the variation on the theme Let's go to the next slide called Real-Time Delphi. Uh, it moves Delphi to um, the Internet online. The, the respondents uh, generate uh, their questionnaires online. Uh, and because the answers can now be uh, averaged and assembled in ver various different ways extremely rapidly, the feedback can happen just as rapidly. So here on this slide we see a question uh, from a given um, questionnaire on infant mortality. Uh, you see on the left side the, the, the object is to forecast the future of infant mortality given the uh, information about the world and Spain and so on. And that linkage, uh, now that we're online, enables the participant to go straight to a source if they want to check on uh, background and history. Uh, on the right-hand side is the questionnaire itself. What's the best plausible value in 2016? The blue square at the top, or rectangle at the top, is the place for the answer. And the average group answer appears 23.4. Uh, seven respondents have participated so far. And there's a flag, which you might include or not include, uh, which shows your answer is different uh, significantly than the group. Uh, and uh, the uh, reasons why people have given for their answers are shown uh, if you click here next to reasons. You go to, you go to a second page, and it shows you this array. And then you can reassess your position in view of the um, reasons for extremes. Uh, at uh, the Millennium Project, where this was developed, <laughs> we have used the method uh, half a dozen times, I would say in subjects that include both energy or range from energy to education uh, to, the, to the construction of uh, global water scenarios, a study that we're about to undertake. We've done it in part already and about to go into a second phase for UNESCO. Next slide, please. The State of the Future Index, the third technique I said I would discuss, also developed at the Millennium Project. This index is designed to answer the question, is the future looking better or worse? That simple. Uh, we went out to the project's nodes and asked them, how, how would you, what would you include in your consideration of the answer to that question? 
And some of the things are listed here. Uh, well, infant mortality has to improve, food availability has to increase, GMP per capita has to increase, etc. So the State of the Future Index is made up of such variables. For each of those variables, we collect 20 years' worth of historical data, forecast them using time series or other kinds of modeling and trend impact analysis, uh, and uh, that permits us then to construct the SOFI in, in his history uh, over 20 years and, and uh, project it as far as the individual variables have allowed us to. It lets us sort out what's gotten better and what's gotten worse. And uh, as you see from the chart here in the lower right-hand corner, over the last 20 years, an increase, a significant increase in the index and uh, through the present, and that as we look into the future of the index, uh, we see a continued growth, but at a slower rate. Uh, this is the last uh, five years of data. We now have six years of data on building that uh, SOFI. And I might say that a number of the uh, nodes that participate uh, with the Millennium Project um, have initiated uh, SOFI studies uh, for their own countries, particularly, for example, China, um, Turkey, uh, South Africa, uh, Venezuela, uh, and other Latin American countries. We've developed a technique for comparison of such national SOFIs uh, on a standardized basis, and we should be seeing more work using that standardized approach uh, quite soon. Uh, I'll be uh, talking about a few slides later in the presentation. Thank you for this initial uh, portion. Uh, I hope your, your meeting goes well. That was wonderful. Uh, from Ted. And uh, maybe before we move on to the, the other section, I'll bring up uh, some core concepts, values, and the Soviet system mission. Uh, okay. So what has been driving this work? Uh, the Sophie methodology, obviously, I mean, to, to build this system around uh, implementing the Sophie methodology. But another very important uh, concept that's driving or inspiring the work has been Douglas Engelbart's bootstrap concept, uh, whereby he, he calls upon people to co-evolve uh, between human and uh, and tools systems, human systems and machines uh, and tools systems, and that's why we are trying to do something with both with people, with process, and also with technology. And so the Sophie system implementation is definitely not a uh, technology project as such. Uh, we're trying to build a knowledge environment to serve a wide variety of applications. We want collaboration among participants and stakeholders in the form of virtual communities. We took very seriously the notion of openness, I mean, whether it's open source software or open standards, uh, open technology, open knowledge, open content, open mind. Uh, that's core to what we're trying to do. Uh, we're driving interoperability through ontology engineering. Uh, we're integrating through a service-oriented architecture, and we
we are trying to tap into the collective intelligence uh, for decision support. So uh, I will now invite Adam Chaya, who, who has been one of the key uh, implementers of the Phase 1 SOGI system, to tell us about it. And incidentally, Adam's brother, Jonathan Chaya, who can, could not be with us today, was the lead uh, technologist and uh, architect of the Phase 1 system. So, Adam? So we started in 2002 in trying to create an online collaborative uh, multi-user version of um, implementation of the SOFI system, which has previously had been a, mostly an offline spreadsheet implementation. Um, so our goal was really to build a portal where people could uh, look at the existing SOFI data and projections that, that were um, globally distributed and then be able to have a community forum and a place where people could interact with the uh, SOFI data, do some what-if uh, analyses, have play, a place for discussing SOFI-related issues, et cetera. Um, as Peter mentioned earlier, we had, it was really a volunteer open source development effort. We had a number of excellent people on the team, and they're listed here. Um, we also had a strong group of advisors, um, both on the SOFI space, including uh, uh, Ted and uh, Jerry, Glenn, and, uh, and uh, John Gottsman, et cetera, and also on the architectural side um, with the people listed there. Um, so let's see, next slide. So this shows the architecture of what we built um, in phase one. If I just move to the, uh, the next slide, we actually didn't build everything on this, this slide. So the pieces in the green box under phase two uh, were anticipated extensions. But basically, we built a, a web-based uh, server-side uh, architecture that interacted. Um, you could interact it just through a plain web browser. Um, you could also, we built a custom client. I'll say a few words uh, more about this, which would, it had a, basically an embedded web browser, and you could have um, multiple pages at the same time. And what it really added was an interactive graphing capability um, that, uh, you really wouldn't have that interactivity and the what-if scenario if you just used the plain web browser. Um, and we, we had SOAP-based interfaces, uh, et cetera. So on next slide, just a few words um, about what we did. So we, we implemented the system using a, a scalable uh, Java Enterprise Edition um, methodology um, using Struts MVC, uh, Model View Controller Architecture. And this allowed us to have multiple users. We could we could scale horizontally to as many users just by adding machines, et cetera. So it was, it was quite an efficient implementation using the state of the art at the time. Um, we a, a fairly um, major part of our work was taking the mathematic logic from the spreadsheet implementations previously and recoding this into a server-side Java-based set of libraries that we could. Uh, put um, efficiently into our platform. So the, the main SOFI algorithms and the trend impact analysis, um, my brother Jonathan worked, worked closely with uh, Jerry and Ted to, to make sure that the, um, the logic in the, in the original SOFI system was preserved in our new collaborative portal. Um, we also were, did everything using open web service-based standards so that you could access the portal through a variety of means. And as I mentioned earlier, 
Um, we, in addition to just a pure web-based approach, we really wanted interactive graphing and charting and be able to, you know, mouse over certain events and drill down. Um, so we did this using a Visual Basic uh, thick client as kind of an optional component. So if you're accessing Sophie, it's best to do it within this uh, environment, and, th and this allowed much more interactivity in graphing and charting. Um, the next slide, I believe, shows, let's see, a few words. So on the SIM platform, I won't say much about this. Um, I think we're using this today, but basically Peter, as part of SIM3, hosts a whole variety of services for um, allowing communities to interact and collaborate, much as we're doing today. Um, and on our roadmap was to have a, a more deep integration with the Sophie portal that we created uh, with Peter's platform, uh, allowing synchronous and asynchronous collaboration in various uh, means. And so this is, we had, you know, we could access this uh, environment through the web browser, but it wasn't as tightly integrated as we would have liked uh, in the phase one system. And finally, on the, the next slide is just kind of a picture of what, uh, what the system looked like. So this is the thick client um, where the main window would be uh, a web browser where you could browse through the, through the portal. We had a number of different tabs with news and collaboration and groups. Um, and then you could access the existing Sophie data when you clicked on the links. If you were in the browser, um, the thick client environment, windows would pop up so you could compare different views of the data and be able to actually change values um, and see the impact on the, on, the, on the charts using the Sophie calculations uh, behind the scenes. So that's pretty much a summary of what we implemented in our phase one uh, six-month effort. And hopefully as, um, you know, we have a team here assembled, we may be able to take this to um, a much uh, more interesting level going forward with a phase two Sophie collaborative environment implementation. Thank you, Adam. Uh, so I mean, that's a good segue into what the next phase uh, will be like. And the next phase of the Sophie system will uh, it will be driven, I mean, as the, this uh, newly assembled group uh, wants it, to be driven with semantics and ontology engineering. And, and that's why we're describing it here uh, in this uh, ontology in knowledge management and decision support mini-series. Uh, so uh, I would start with, I mean, I, of course, um, most uh, most of the people are familiar with ontologies, but I would start with sort of a, a couple of slides uh, that are very basic but very important to us uh, that I borrow from the Ontology Summit 2007 symposium uh, that was run uh, earlier this year in April uh, between uh, NIST and Ontolog. And they sort of came to this uh, conclusion that, uh, we need to look at ontologies with a, a sort of much more inclusive uh, uh, view. And of course, for those who are unfamiliar with the term, uh, Tom Gruber sort of defined it, I mean, for, uh, for computer science and engineering. The term ontology comes from 
uh, metaphysics, uh, which included epistemology and ontology, but that's not the philosophical, uh, at least not necessarily the philosophical part of it that we are focusing in. Uh, in computer science and engineering, we are focusing in sort of uh, how to specify conceptualization. So uh, Tom Gruber sort of defined it as the as ontology as a specification of conceptualization. Nevertheless, I mean, the sheer range of current work on ontology is, is mind-boggling. I mean, it, it includes taxonomies, the SORI, topic maps, conceptual models, formal ontologies, and so on. And uh, it raises the possibility of ontologies being developed without a common understanding of the definition implementation and, and application. Uh, that was a real challenge and the group of ontologists and other uh, interested uh, conveners came together to say, what can we do about it? And their work came up with a framework that ensure we can support a diversity of uh, work without divergence and that uh, we can have shareability and reusability among different approaches to ontology. And that actually is what is being adopted in our next phase of the uh, SOFIE system project. So going to the next slide, which is slide 30, the framework goes like this. First of all, uh, it's proposed as a set of dimensions that would be used could be used to distinguish different approaches. And the, at the top, the breakout is into semantics and pragmatics. And within semantics, uh, semantics there are a few dimensions like the degree of structure and formality, the expressiveness of the knowledge representation language, the representational granularity, uh, and you know, on the pragmatic side, uh, one would sort of try to cover uh, what is the intended use, what's the role of automated reasoning, whether the ontology is descriptive or prescriptive, uh, what is the design methodology, and also how is, it, is the ontology being governed, the, the governance of that ontology. So based on this as a sort of underpinning uh, in driver for our next phase, I will call upon the various uh, new team members who will be making specific uh, the contribution to various pieces in the SOFIE system. The first person I'm going to call upon is Professor Ken Belkowski, uh, who is going to address the SOFIE computation, the algorithm and try to introduce the use of an ontology-driven Bayesian network uh, in the quantitative uh, decision side of the, those numbers. So, Ken? Oh, thank you, Peter. So, I'm going to be talking about uh, some of my work that I'm doing with my students at Northeastern University on uh, decision support, and in particular on the, um, the relationship of uh, decisions and decision analysis to ontologies. The, um, as we've heard now, policies and decisions are very important in uh, development processes. Um, in, in my work, uh, I'm focusing on the 
formal annotation of those decisions. And there are a number of benefits that such uh, formal ontological annotations can have in uh, decision-making and policy-making. Uh, first of all, you can integrate the uh, decision-making with the overall process, um, which may often involve many other artifacts. The, um, another important point is that uh, after you've made a decision, it's, it's important that you revisit it when circumstances may evolve, and that's certainly very important in something like SOFI. But it, it's also important in other decision environments, uh, any place where development is occurring, and that um, it's necessary to make uh, make decisions that that may have to be revisited. Um, it's also possible that a decision might be delayed. You may put off uh, making a policy. Um, but then if you do so, you want to store, you want to save what analysis you've already performed so that uh, you don't have to start all over again in making the uh, the decision. Uh, finally, uh, this is a, um, a very interesting possibility um, for, the, for future uh, decision making is that you could use one decision um, that has already been made in making another decision. Uh, so by, by detecting decisions that are similar enough to the one that you're making, you can then reuse it. Uh, we use the term rationale for an annotated decision. So that's just the uh, technical term that we're using. And in a moment, if you go to slide 33, you'll see our rationale ontology. Uh, so here's a, a diagram uh, of uh, basically it's a protege diagram that uh, illustrates how the various concepts in a rationale are related to each other. Uh, on the right-hand side, you see a, a, a hierarchy, a, a kind of taxonomy of different possible ways of performing an analysis a decision. And uh, on the left, you'll see um, the rationale and uh, the link that the rationale has to the decision and to other uh, concepts. And if you go to slide 34, uh, we give a process model for how decisions uh, are made, obviously in actual processes, you'll find that this process model would be elaborated sometimes to a considerable extent um, in, uh, uh, in, in these real processes that occur at, at high levels in governments and uh, in companies. In this, in this process model, we make it clear that decisions can involve iteration. So you, uh, in sort of building up toward making the decision, you enumerate assumptions, list alternatives, list criteria for determining which alternative is to uh, be chosen, and then you, you iterate on it. You do this whole thing all over again until you're satisfied that you have succeeded in coming up with a good framework for making the decision. Then you make the decision. That's the arguments made. And then the decision is recommended. Um, and then the whole process can then iterate again if you revisit the decision. So on the slide 35 and successive slides, this is an animation uh, actually that I set up and it, it's spread out now on a series of slides. It shows policy decision example, and so it shows this, this uh, process model in action. It shows the uh, relationship 
to uh, the ontology. Ontology um, concepts will be in blue, uh, and those uh, that are more part of the artifact, the, the decision analysis part, will be in, in white. So on 35, you see I just uh, have stated a particular issue that is to be addressed, which is brain health. This is a kind of hypothetical policy decision that will be made um, sometime in the future, you know, 10 years or so in the future. Um, and if you move to slide 36, you'll see the first part of this process is to uh, start building up some of the context or background for the decision. In this case, there's a brain health level, uh, age of population, and fertility rate. This is a, an example of a, a Bayesian network. These are uh, variables that um, influence one another probabilistically. And the arrows represent, uh, should be read, influences. So brain health level influences the age of the population, and so does the fertility rate. Moving to slide 37, we now add the decision. I mean, these are the these are the possibilities that we have to consider in our decision. In this case, it's what level of investment is to be made in brain health intervention techniques. Um, the assumption is that in the future there will be techniques that will be developed um, that will enable one to affect the brain health level of the population. So that's this box here. And this is, a, it's, it's another node in the Bayesian network but it's, it's in a box to indicate that it is a decision to be made. And moving to slide 38, um, we now add the criteria for determining how we're going to make the decision. And the criterion is in a hexagon, and it's labeled standard of living. This, this, uh, so the idea is that we want to optimize or maximize the standard of living uh, by our decision uh, on the investment level in brain health intervention techniques. And as you can see, the standard of living is affected by all of those um, uh, all of those nodes here, fertility, right age of population, and brain health level. Then moving to slide 39, uh, after we have reached this point where we have an influence diagram in the previous slide, uh, now we iterate the process to find other influences that uh, may affect our decision. And in this case, we find that uh, issues such as uh, ageism and ethical concerns can affect the investment level um, in brain health intervention techniques. This illustrates the iterative nature of this whole process. The idea would be that in, a, in a SOFI, for example, this would be an open process where individuals would um, suggest additional possibilities for what could influence this decision. Um, so now having completed the process of creating this influence diagram for the decision, I've now on slide 40 have put all of the uh, influence diagram in a uh, rectangular box. Now I begin, we begin the process of annotating it to create a rationale uh, entity there, brain health policy rationale, um, and link it to the other entities, in particular the, the poll analysis we just done, we've just done, and the uh, issue that is being addressed. Then on slide 42, 
uh, we have further annotation of the decision showing alternatives uh, that are being considered, the criterion that is going to be used to determine what alternative is to be selected. And let's see, finally, online on slide 43, uh, we add evidence, in this case census data, which will uh, be used to uh, determine the debate uh, uh, the network nodes in the analysis. This is just one example of evidence that would certainly be this, this process of annotation would go uh, much longer than this. There'd be much more information. The idea is that once you've fully annotated your decision, then it's possible uh, to begin linking decisions together, reusing decisions, uh, discovering when a decision has to be reconsidered, and so on. Uh, in, this, in this way, the ontology becomes a, a fundamental tool in managing and organizing policies and decisions. And that's the uh, last slide. Okay. Thank you very much, Ken. And uh, with that, we call upon uh, Dr. Patrick Cassidy from MICRA. Uh, Pat, uh, for those who are in the ontology domain, will know that he is a staunch supporter of a common foundational ontology as being the most effective means for interoperability. And for the ongoing SOFIE system project, we have opted to adopt uh, uh, Pat's idea of creating a conceptual defining vocabulary as the foundational ontology. So uh, Pat will tell us more about his thoughts on working, getting semantic interoperability through a foundational ontology. Pat? Yes. Um well, to start with, uh, I, I would say that um, in this context, an ontology uh, can actually be viewed as having three different uses. Uh, the simplest would be to uh, allow precise definitions uh, so that one can construct for any given community a common uh, vocabulary uh, and, and uh, solely for human consumption so that people will be quite clear as to what they intend when they use a particular term. So it could be used for constructing uh, terminologies that have very clear-cut definitions in them. Um, when you start using an ontology that is capable of um, being used by a computer, you, you then can have individual standalone applications which can use an ontology. Uh, and if the ontology is built so that it can be used for inferencing or has a hierarchy in it, uh, that can add power to individual applications. What I would focus on is the, uh, the use of, okay, uh, of an ontology as, as a means of integrating multiple applications. And when integrating multiple applications, the application is going to pass information back and forth between each other. And uh, for that purpose, uh, the, the individual applications have to be able to understand the meaning of the data which is passed back and forth. Uh, in general, when people build um, Multi, uh, multiple applications that are going to communicate with each other. They have a communications protocol so that they, uh, they clearly define what the meanings of the, of the data is that is passed among the modules in, in a multi-module program. What the ontology does is provide you with a very high-powered means of representing very complex data, data of the type that 
up until now, up until recently, only people could truly understand. And the technology has evolved to where we can represent such data, and the question now is uh, how do we uh, decide on just exactly which protocol and, and which set of basic uh, fundamental concepts are going to be used to represent data that is going to be passed between each other. And when machines pass information to each other and the information that is passed is understood, we would call that semantic, uh, semantic interoperability. The defining vocabulary is a tactic I have focused on recently in trying to achieve a common ontology. Those who have been in the field for a while know there have been over a dozen years. Different communities have been uh, trying to agree upon a common foundation ontology for precisely the purpose I mentioned, to try to uh, use a, a common uh, standard of meaning that will allow different uh, computer applications to understand the information passed back and forth. That hasn't happened, um, not yet. There, the uh, so I'm, I'm proposing a tactic in which we look at the foundation ontology as being uh, a defining vocabulary. And I'll start by telling you what a linguistic defining vocabulary is for. Over 20 years, there are certain dictionary uh, uh, publishers who have published dictionaries which use a controlled defining vocabulary. In the LDOS, the Longman's Dictionary of Contemporary English, it's around 2,000 words. And all of the definitions in their dictionary are defined using those 2,000 words. Uh, my proposal is that uh, we should try to uh, agree on a common foundation ontology by structuring the common foundation ontology as a conceptual defining vocabulary, analogously to what's used in language, that we want a small, uh, uh, manageable set of basic concepts represented in an ontology that will by themselves be necessary, both necessary and sufficient to define all the other concepts in, in any other field one would want. And uh, we know that when, when, when you say something like define everything, people say, oh, you'll never be able to define everything. Of course not. Uh, the idea is you start with something that will define almost everything, and uh, as time goes by and, and you need supplementation, then you will supplement your foundation ontology. Uh, but as far as trying to get agreement, I think this tactic has, has the best promise for minimizing the um, the causes of disagreement that we've identified over the past 12 years. Uh, in the next slide, slide uh, 6. 46, yes. Um, the uh, question then is uh, just exactly how would such a common conceptual defining vocabulary <coughs> enable semantic operability? And the idea is that if everybody uses these concepts, same set of concepts to define the terms, to specify the meanings of the terms in their own ontologies, then uh, at any point when any two separate groups who have used the common defining vocabulary, if they want to interoperate, they will exchange with each other the definitions of those terms which are not in the common conceptual defining vocabulary. And it's imaginable that one can have an automatic procedure that will simply take all of these definitions, identify uh, 
similar identify concepts which are uh, redundant, and then create from that emerged common ontology, which then can be used by both institutions. Uh, if you have both use essentially the same merged common ontology, then when they present this common ontology with the same data, they will necessarily arrive at the same inferences. Of course, they may not use exactly the same data. Then you'll have some. Then in some one uh, group may wind up with inferences that the other group doesn't have, but the inferences will not be logically contradictory because they are all based on the same fundamental ontology, which is the same merged ontology, which was enabled by using the basic defining vocabulary. So that's that's the vision of how this works, and uh, my uh, feeling is that this is the best tactic for achieving the common uh, common vocabulary, common conceptual defining vocabulary. Um, and and then the question is that that uh, we we know that uh, there have been a number of foundation ontologies. People call them upper ontologies also, which have been defined, and they've gotten some use here and there, but not really uh, a. a critical larger and larger numbers of users yet. And so how would a, another foundation ontology structured as a conceptual defining vocabulary uh, do any better than this? Well, the, one idea is to keep the foundation ontology as small as possible. The, with existing ontologies, it's not clear where the, the bases and, and, and the extensions begin. Uh, in psych, they're act, they actually have a, a, um, a, a common base, but they don't actually call it a defining vocabulary, and haven't, to my knowledge, attempted to verify that this uh, uh, that their base KB, base knowledge base, will function that way. So the idea is try to try to maximize the possibility of agreement, keep the foundation ontology as small as possible, and you can do that with the defining vocabulary. Uh, you want to focus on the elements that are most essential to support what we hope to achieve ultimately, some approach to human level understanding of of, uh, information and by uh, allowing expansion uh, as, as new, newer different domains are defined, you will provide all of the elements that are required to support interoperability for any two groups that want to interoperate. Now, of course, if somebody wants, wants to build a standalone operation, they don't have to worry about interoperability. This may be superfluous and may be more work than they need. It doesn't matter if somebody's sitting in a corner and doing their own ontologies. The, uh, they can build an ontology that suits their purposes, and that is, in fact, what people are doing now. But we're projecting a time when people will have semantically empowered local applications that do want to transmit information to each other and do it in a very accurate way, and this is a mechanism I think is uh, most likely to, uh, to work. Next slide. Uh, how big will it be? As I say, the Longman's Dictionary is about 2,000 words, if you add in the plurals and various tenses of verbs, you wind up with 9,000. Um, and since there is some uh, ambiguity in the words that Longman's uses, uh, my guess right now is that uh, probably at least 4,000 different concepts or word senses will be needed. It may be larger than that. Uh, we don't know that something that's going to have to be determined by experience as newer fields are added in. It will almost certainly grow, but it may not grow very large, very quickly. If you start off with a reasonable base, uh, it may it, you, one may be surprised to find that to defining, say, a thousand new terms, you may only need uh, ten or twenty new uh, f fundamental terms. And there's criteria for determining when, when is a term fundamental or not. We have no time to get into that now. Uh, 
But the idea is if you start this way, this is our best chance, I think, of, of heading uh, toward real agreement on, on the, uh, the standard of meaning. The uh, fundamental terms, I call them primitives, and uh, one hopes that as uh, the experience will be that as you define more and more different fields, you'll find that the percentage of terms you define that require new primitives will become fewer and fewer over time as the foundation ontology expands to the point where it really will define just about everything. And page, or slide 49, again the question of how is this different from the existing upper ontologies. The idea is to focus on the basic concepts uh, and to demonstrate first, and, and primarily to demonstrate that those are actually satisfactory for what you need. Most of the work in ontology has been driven by immediate needs, uh, questions of where are the, uh, who, who are the terrorists and how do you diffuse an IED, uh, how do you analyze gigabytes of text, and that has not provided the ontologists really any time to focus on the more fundamental elements, which should be solved first before you can uh, look for understanding of the most, much more complex things. And uh, I would visualize that the first application to demonstrate that this is real uh, and, and not just another toy system is to create an uh, English language understanding system that at least has the ability to speak with the kind, the kind of uh, linguistic fluency that a child has achieved. Uh, until one gets to that point, I would be skeptical that a system that can't do that can really do anything else at a very uh, at close to human level. Of course, you can do useful things, and like people are doing useful things. But uh, if their goal is ultimately to move toward human level understanding, then I think we should start with the uh, understanding at the most fundamental level and try to get that right uh, before we uh, try to crack the harder nuts. Now, how does this uh, apply to the SOFI? Well, the SOFI system is trying to integrate many different uh, complex and, and subtle concepts from people in, in different cultures. And in order to be able to get people to talk to each other, we need good uh, communication on the linguistic level, but just say we should have a common vocabulary that people can look at and say, yes, that, that, that is what I mean by when I use this word, and so therefore we will understand each other. And then when we want the machines to help us do any, any element of reasoning for the various types of calculations and decision support that is the goal in this project, Again, we need to have a precise representation of the meaning and the ability of multiple modules to precisely move their data back and forth between each other. And that's the element in this this process, this task that I will be focusing on. That's everything. Okay. Thank you, Pat. And I'll call upon uh, Adam again to give us a vision of a collaborative knowledge environment that is going into the next phase of the SOFI system. Uh, Adam? Okay, um, slide 51. Yep. Um, already the SIM3 environment offers quite a lot in terms of collaborative capability, um, but I'm, I've been looking at uh, what kinds of collaborative environments would be required to do um, decision-making. Uh, I took a few points um, from some a presentation I did about three years ago on the anniversary, in a sense, of 10 years into 
web environments, I mean, since the birth of Amazon and things of that sort, and tried to make 10 predictions for the next 10 years um, uh, focused on trends. And this is sort of the summary slide of them. Um, and, and as we do this, it'll provide a few hints about some of the elements that we should look for when putting together uh, collaborative environments. And in addition, uh, these are not separate uh, points. I mean, my, my view of what a, the ultimate collaborative environment would, would have actually is a full integration of, of all of this. And this, this carries a little bit uh, my view of, of where the SOFI environment and, and other collaborative portals should, uh, should go. So the first trend, um, first prediction, all media becomes digital. Uh, at the time, YouTube didn't exist. At the time, you know, there was people, the way people consumed information was, was becoming ever digital, but this is going to uh, increase at a rapid rate. And we now need to have our, our collaborative portal support um, video, support images, support, um, you know, second life type uh, uh, representations to be able to really, as we're communicating and working together, um, be able to harness and amass and link to and reference all of the content that we're going to be having. Um, point two, structured and disconnected become semantically organized. That really is, you know, a nice segue from the previous segment uh, from Pat, which is today most systems, they have their own separate internal data structures. Um, but even within the same system, there's a lot of inconsistency. Um, if you take Microsoft Outlook, for instance, you have contacts. You know, Adam Chire is a contact. Uh, I also receive Adam Chire as a um, you know, on an email, uh, separately in calendar. And these really, those representations of Adam Chire do not refer to the same record, the same object, uh, the same ontological concept. And, I, you know, one would expect I could right-click wherever I see Adam Chire and do the same kinds of things. But even within a same application, such as Outlook, um, they're disconnected. And the world is really needs to and is moving towards a much more ontological uh, view where data can be uh, interchanged and, and have sort of semantic meanings, um, and you really get the right properties that you would expect uh, if you do that. Uh, point three, um, collaborative. Uh, so we used to have editors, um, like the New York Times, would have one person who would compose a column, and that would uh, be the word for millions of people. Um, with you know, you've seen trends such as Wikipedia, which is which is actually the masses are being the editors or Google News where, um, you know, the entire newspaper, in a sense, is actually put together by automated um, algorithms harnessing what's most popular out there on the web. So without the unified perspective of one individual editor, um, and that will continue as a trend, we really need to be able to build our, our systems that harness the, um, the collective intelligence of our community and allow them to do uh, to, to become an interactive part of the process uh, and making it very malleable. Uh, point four: unstructured and structured merge. So today, there's you know database-style applications, um, you know where you have very structured data with fields that you can query, and then you have unstructured, which is text such as articles and web pages. Um, but more and more, those are starting to blend. If you see examples. Um, like uh, Zoom Info will actually uh, scan the web for articles about people 
and extract information and build up a unified structured representation that Adam Chire worked at this place with this title at certain times. And so it's, it's really starting to blend um, uh, unstructured text and make references and, and structure data out of that, and, and that will also continue to, uh, to, to continue. Um, trend five, social networking takes off. So when I wrote this in 2004, LinkedIn was, um, you know, somewhat popular, and there were probably 200 social networking sites that you've never heard of. Um, but now you look back on it, and you see MySpace as one of the, the top uh, websites in the world and, you know, 200 million users and Facebook with 40 million users, um, which didn't exist. So it was somewhat of an outrageous claim to make in 2004. But being able to understand what is it about these social applications and, and really wanting to connect to people that you know and trust and build those trust relationships and share news and really reach out and touch people in the way that a Facebook and a MySpace let you do, um, that is, it's really a key learning, I think, in the last two or three years, how to do that right and really drive traffic and collaboration um, in, in a platform. Uh, part six, personalization becomes ubiquitous. Um, so, you know, recommendation engines like Amazon.com and, and things like that say, well, when people who buy these books also buy these books, um, that will continue. I mean, already Google advertising and a, a lot of what the web is, is based on, on what you do and who you are and what classes that it, that it puts together. And applications should, should evolve in this way as well. Um, what hasn't happened yet but will with Facebooks and others is not being personalized to the, the complete masses but combining that with the previous bullet of social networking where you're getting recommendations based on what you do and who you are but in the context of your friend. So it's not that any person will buy that book. Uh, it's that within your friend network of peers and respected people, um, this particular book or this particular action is, is, is highly interesting. Um, part seven, so public and private content merge. Uh, it used to be that you would, you'd have this, these three universes where the web was open and public and private information was stored on your laptop, all of your email and your um, contact information and files, and then you'd have rented information at home, your books, your library of books and videos, and now that's completely blending. You really want to be able to access information from anywhere, which gets us into the next point, um, with the right permissions, um, but be able to consume it uh, in, any, in any way. Uh, point nine, so the, the first eight points were all about imagining a platform where data is structured and unstructured and filtered and, and viewed uh, through personalized social connections, um, and it's very adaptable and dynamic to the user experience. Um, point nine talks about really what we'll get into next, which is web service ecology, where applications themselves should no longer be just a bundle, you know, of all the functionality. Microsoft Word has a zillion features, and I don't use 90% of it. Um, what if each application or each web experience were completely malleable, um, com combined of the services and components that, that you want to use, perhaps recommended um, dynamically through your social networks and personalized to your tastes, um, but, but having applications and application portals be composed in a much more loosely, comp uh, loosely coupled, componentized methodology 
um, is, you know, a key trend that's coming. And then finally, uh, the point 10, I, I'm, I work at SRI on something called Kalo. It's uh, probably one of the largest AI projects ever, and it's really focused on building learning-based intelligence software. And the idea is that once applications and your web and software uh, experience has, is based on a platform or platforms that have many of these components where there's structured data and the right permissions so you can share what you want uh, with who, et cetera, basically intelligent assistants will be able to come in and, and have enough visibility and understanding of, of your needs to really be able to help you navigate your life more efficiently, uh, to make decisions, to support uh, problems, um, you know, individually and through through teams. So this is just kind of a, you know, uh, all of these components exist today in some form, and there's a lot of background data on the trends, um, but this gives you some um, view about as you go, you know, forward seven, ten years, the convergence of all of these is, is really what the web experience will be and should be, and as we architect our Sophie platform and collaborative environments based on ontologies and data and decisions and people, we want to keep these trends in mind um, to build kind of a modern and, and actually push the state of the art for positive uh, collaboration activities. Okay, so on the next, next slide, um, a few specific points. I'm not going to speak to this too long, but um, you know, we've talked about ontology as a way of really having kind of a conceptual defining vocabulary, gives semantic interoperability among data, um, and we'll hear more about kind of service-oriented architectures and ontologies play a role there. Um, as you may know, in the ontology space, there's been some discussion about, well, should we do folksonomies and versus ontologies? Um, in, in my view, and, and and perhaps some of the group's view, there's actually a spectrum of representational techniques ranging from uh, collaborative tagging for folksonomies, et cetera, up through um, ontological structures, which are sometimes more formal in nature, but really required as you're doing inference and reasoning and normalization of data from different sources and being able to make sure when you combine uh, symbols or, or data from from places you, you can combine it accurately um, in order to make your decisions. A few uh, other uh, techniques and, and um, that we've been exploring here at SRI, uh, some, one thing is called topic maps, which really is best used, I feel, for subject-centered navigation. So when you click on Adam Chire, there's one Adam Chire in the universe, and from Adam Chire, you'll have links out to different things. So these are people, projects he works on, and these are uh, people he works with, and these are, you know, so it, it gives kind of a navigational structure that lets you move through a space of data and decisions and gives you views um, in, a, in a kind of unified way. <clears throat> We've been looking at structured argumentation, so as you have discussions and discussion forums, how can you synthesize this um, to produce a, a summary or a topic where you can see, well, there were all these discussions, but what were the end proposals and what um, what did people say? What were the pros and the cons for those proposals? So it allows you to overlay um, some, some structure into an evolving conversation as you go. Uh, we've been looking at process wikis, which is one thing, once you have a collaborative portal, you know, there'll be lots of links to share, lots of wiki pages with data on them. 
but there will also be kind of decision trees or recommendations about how to do things um, in a certain world. And those how-tos, um, you know, different groups of people will do them in different ways, but they want to be able to discover these more process structures and refer to others and make links, um, but, but be able to adapt them and, and, and share them in different ways. Um, so we've been looking at process, uh, kind of process wikis that uh, manage a much more uh, rich structure um, <coughs> than just a flat wiki page, for instance. Um, and then on the on the next uh, page or two, I think it's turning. Um, I have just a few examples. There's some publications you can find out there, and and some are live public sites that you can try. Some of the systems that I've built and we've built here at SRI. Um, that illustrates some of these concepts in, in various uh, dimensions. Um, one is called Tagamizer, which is really a, a topic map-driven um, uh, portal for sharing um, bookmarks and content, very delicious-like, but um, with a good illustration of how topic maps can be used um, to, to let you move through the space uh, with, with a topic, uh, sort of a subject-oriented view. Uh, on the next page, I think it's coming up, uh, change.org. So I will self, um, you know, do a little bit of self-promotion and urge you all to uh, go to change.org. It's a collaborative portal for changing, changing the most important issues in the world, making them better. So uh, change.org believes there's really two ways to, to solve problems such as cancer or crime or uh, global warming or things like that. Uh, one is to, you know, kind of organize and find, uh, organize, you know, groups of people who care about those, uh, issues and then who, and then to fund those groups in order to make changes. So, um, nonprofits, uh, are, you know, are there and we've enabled payment processing and when you donate, your friends, it's very social, your friends and friends of friends can contribute with you, um, to make causes. There's also a political side, so another good way to, uh, change the world is to find out the politicians who matter and be able to canvass them and let them know your opinions. Um, so change.org gives, kind of democratizes, um, uh, that allows lots of different communities to self-form in a very democratic way and then spread the word through click-to-call mechanisms or email lists, et cetera, uh, to the politicians. Um, so I think change.org is a good example of this with the social. It's, it has a lot of recommendation engines, so when you log in, you see what's the news most interested to the topics you care about and that your friends care about. What are they doing? A lot of the face, there's a Facebook um, version of change.org. So I think there's a lot that you can, that we can learn from the work on change.org um, into kind of what elements do we want in a, in a collaborative portal. And then finally, the, Last one here is something called source mix. Um, this is actually trying to change the way programming happens, which uh, instead of being a, a very individual pursuit where a programmer downloads some code from something like SourceForge and then works on it, maybe puts it back into open source, but it's, it's a very individual pursuit. Um, what if um, programming happened in an environment that you could discover popular services and content and code and then be able to contribute to that code and combine it in interesting ways, all in a wiki-like uh, collaborative structure. And you get the problems of how do you have different groups working on different aspects of things, 
uh, permissions and references? Do you want to point to the latest version of that service or to a specific one? Um, things, of the, things of that sort. So those are just some vision and thought and examples of um, collaborative portals. And I think in our next phase two version of the collaborative infrastructure side of the SOFI project, uh, we can bring many of the, these uh, techniques and visions to bear on the problem. Thank you, Adam. And the next sort of challenging question actually would be, how could we architect a co-evolving human-machine system for collective intelligence? And a few of us have uh, put our heads together. Uh, Dwayne Nichol, in particular, offered up a few slides, but he is in, uh, in Europe right now. So maybe I will uh, sort of take people through these very quickly. Uh, first of all, uh, I sort of listed out some of the key tenets of what we are trying to do. Uh, it, most of them has already been uh, stated earlier, but um, essentially we're trying to implement a platform in open architecture using ontologies, uh, incorporating maybe uh, enhanced algorithms and mathematics. Uh, we try to use ontology as a next level of abstraction so that we can optimize. And uh, we want to create an open surface environment. So uh, the notion of surface-oriented architecture comes into play. Of course, I mean, in the traditional client-server uh, system, I mean, you have a server with all the information, you have the client uh, system to access what's on the server. And since we're going into Web 2.0 era now, uh, we were in, actually, I'm on slide 59 now, and this is one of uh, Dwayne's slide, and he cites uh, Tim O'Reilly, who coined the term, or at least who's, uh, who everyone refers to when they talk about Web 2.0, and the key line, the punchline quotes saying, don't treat software as an artifact, but as a process of engagement with your users. And that's part of uh, something we would like to do too. So in a typical like Web 2.0 architecture, you've got something like this. I'm not going to go into detail, but like the standard technology and protocol, the service layer, and so on, this uh, we could all sort of put into a surface-oriented architecture. And as, but I mean, how do we sort of take that to the next level of abstraction? Uh, on this, I'm referring to Dwayne's good work as chair of the OASIS Service-Oriented Architecture Reference Model uh, Technical Committee. This is the taxonomy or which they're developing into an ontology of what core model of the SOA would look like. And with that abstraction, uh, this is one candidate architecture we are looking at. And of course, we will be having an architecture and design workshop uh, when, when we go into the next, first thing going into the next phase. So uh, this is just one candidate. But essentially, this candidate uh, cites that we build on the core tenet 
and axioms of the SOA as defined in the OASIS uh, reference model for SOA. And data is pulled from multiple sources, manipulated, made available via services invocation layer for a multitude of clients. And besides just data, we are also looking towards having the service architecture where different technologies could plug in. I mean, we, we uh, Adam showed us, I mean, the various things that are going to happen. Uh, the only uh, thing that we can be sure of is that it's going to continue to change. So what we would need actually is the architecture whereby technologies, data are all sort of wrapped as services so that they could be plugged into the architecture. And with the use of a spectrum, I borrow a slide from Leo Obers, one of the co-conveners of Ontolog, uh, which states, I mean, even when we have this entire range of ontologies, uh, can we really use them? Obviously, the answer is yes. I mean, people have been arguing without just realizing that there are various applications that a different sort of uh, granularity, different forms of the, uh, of the ontologies are, are best suited for. And this is a good slide that I, I would not go into details, but uh, has been included for completeness that people could go through later. So on that, uh, we come to sort of a concluding uh, discussion segment, and I will uh, have Ted sort of open up with a few words and then invite uh, Denise over to give an outside look and then maybe invite questions afterwards. So uh, let me put Ted on. Hello, everybody. Once again, here we are talking now about making better strategic decisions uh, and, and how that lofty objective might be obtained. Um, the, the selfie slide is uh, repeated here for you. Uh, you recall I described this as a means of answering the question about whether the future is looking better or worse. Well, if we, if we let's suppose for a moment we were a global decision maker. Uh, we have our objectives in pursuing a particular strategy. Um, if one of the tests of that strategy were to be selfie, we could then say the, the strategy is uh, possible, possibly going to achieve its ends and in the process uh, improve the state of the, the outlook for the state of the future or not, as the case may be. It is one more tool for identifying the consequences of strategy and using those consequences in an evaluation mode uh, before implementation. Furthermore, because we search for um, the, the, uh, the changes in these variables on a variable-by-variable variable basis using trend impact analysis, we can identify future events which perturb this curve. Uh, and strategy could then be directed toward changing the probabilities of those events which move Sophie in a favorable direction and away from unfavorable consequences. Next slide, please. I think that what we've heard here this morning uh, leads to, ultimately, a new decision science. 
futures research is only a part of of that new new decision science. Um, foresight, FTA, it goes by a number of different names elsewhere in the world. It also ultimately would include um, study of intuition. We know people who make good decisions without any of this. How do they do that? What are the clues that lead them to conclusions which reality proves are good? How does our imagination work? How does experience aggregate into good decision-making? This new science would include psychology, obviously, personal utility functions, how um, what we had for breakfast affects our ability to make good decisions, for example. Uh, the work of uh, Kahneman and Tversky is important here. The natural tendency of human minds to arrive at illogic, illogical conclusions is what they've shown. And uh, to understand that uh, and implement it in, included in, integrated with decision-making would be extremely useful. Uh, the balance, the appropriate balance of risk and rewards would be included. The idea of conducting experiments in the limited sense to understand policy consequences, to look for policies that work by analogy. Uh, and uh, last of all, as a friend of mine, uh, Rush Kidder, who's the president of the Institute for Global Ethics, says what we need in decision makers is not only this kind of science, I put that in quotes, but moral courage to do what is right. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Ted. Uh, let's call upon Denise uh, to give us her view on what all these sound to her. Denise? Okay. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this great presentation today. Um, I want to start out um, just by uh, going back to some practical considerations, and I want to—I think it was Ted who um, included in his, his earlier slide the statement that the value of futures research lies in its use in identifying and assessing new possibilities. And I think that's, for me, that's the real value here. Um, I think futures research helps people to identify alternatives, as we've heard today. Um, Alternatives is actually a cornerstone of economic thinking and forecasting. Um, alternative scenarios are built upon our knowledge of the factors which influence the future. And although I think we would say we would all agree that the human mind is very powerful, um, its capacity is limited in terms of tracking multiple paths. Given enough time, enough people, we can all um, it, it, determine what the future might be, but by the time we get to that point, the future will already be here. One of the things I'd like to share with you is what, um, on the human level, what uh, James Wolfenson was trying to do when he was president of the World Bank, oh, let's see, more than, I think, about five years ago, ten to five, five to ten years ago. He was trying to get uh, people at the World Bank to see things from different perspectives. He was trying to get the people who were working on road transport to see the impact that that might have on education. He was trying to get um, people to see the impact that um, uh, girls' education might ultimately have on um, health in a community, etc. 
So he saw a lot of the factors um, that I think you're you're looking at in the SOFI index in terms of predicting what the future might be. And he tried to create a climate here where we we crossed knowledge domains. So I see the SOFI research um, as being um, a very important tool um, on the human level for providing a context where people who know some part, something about some part of the, the problem can come together and share what they know. So the collaborative environment I think is very important on a human level. I think that um, our experience, and, and you may not have found this in the Soviet um, work today, is that sometimes it's very hard to get those experts who know something to participate. And so another way of maybe getting information into the SOFI um, context is to mine the data, to look for the factors that might influence the future, and to at least put that information out in front of the experts um, so that they're, they're, um, they become more aware of the issues. Okay. Um, we know that somebody who is an expert in road construction is um, very focused on transport issues, not necessarily paying any attention to girls' education, et cetera. The same thing with water and sanitation system design. Okay, so um, I think um, one of the practical uh, values is um, that this effort provides a context in which multiple domain experts can share ideas about a possible future they can discuss their ideas about it, they can test, and hopefully they also rethink. Um, so the ultimate um, impact may be a new policy, but along the way there are a lot of experts who are learning things um, about uh, different factors. Um, okay, uh, next slide, please. So. One of the challenges, though, um, I, I appreciated the slide earlier in the presentation that identified all of the factors that might influence a particular um, um, outcome. Um, the challenge that we have, though, is um, how do we identify that list of factors? Okay. And we may, if we get people to tell us what they think those factors are, and we have a really good representative set of people, over time, we might um, we might get a good idea of those factors. The challenge, I think, one of the challenges is if we forget an important factor, then some of our um, re our conclusions may not be as valid as um, they should be. So, um, and I think Patrick talked uh, touched upon some very important things as well. Um, if we're trying to um, you know, how do we go about modeling those factors that have an influence on the future? Something as simple as child infant mortality. Um, if we're talking about data mining methods, which are predicated on high-quality, reliable data, which have been explicitly and commonly defined across institutions, then our results are going to probably be pretty reliable. But if we um, have any messiness in the data, or if there's any need to translate between infant mortality, under five mortality, 
another way of saying under five mortality, et cetera, or child mortality, um, then we may, um, our, the data that we're using may not be as good as it may be. So, so I think, I think what I'm trying to say is that most, everything I've heard today is very important to the success of the SOFI index. Um, and I also see the SOFI uh, project as being very important to um, just un better understanding of economic policy um, and, and economic development. Okay. But I should also qualify that while I, am, I work at the World Bank, um, I am not in a policy position and I'm not an economist. Um, I've had a little bit of economics background, but my position title is information, senior information officer, not senior economist. So I'm not necessarily speaking for the bank economists. Um, I do know that we are um, working with a standard called SDMX, uh, which is um, a, um, looking at um, ways to encode structured data and metadata about structured data for sharing outside. We have not gotten very far on that, um, and one of my recommendations in the next couple of months will be that we push that um, standard a little bit further, but I believe that that standard is is relevant to what you're doing at SOFI. In fact, you may already be using it um, because it is coming out of the development community. Yes. Um, in, in fact, Dwayne Nichol is, is part of the, the technical committee draft, that drafted the SDMX standard, and uh, that is definitely one of the candidate the standards that we will be using. And we're also looking at, for example, IBM's UEMA, uh, the unstructured information uh, management architecture, and so on. So all these will come into play. Well, I think one other thing I would hope you would look at is um, also, maybe in the future, um, looking at ways to push, automatically push the content into um, the space, uh, the SOFI space, where the experts are um, discussing or voting, um, especially for identifying the factors. And I think one thing we've begun to see is we try 10 years later to realize Wolfenson's vision is we are now beginning to pull out the, the wide range of factors and topics, et cetera, that are in the content um, automatically. And I've just included a simple example here of a, a poverty reduction strategy paper um, for Guinea and um, showing you that essentially it's, it's telling us that population policies also are related to rural poverty reduction and health monitoring. Excuse me. Final slide. These are just a very simple um, uh, example of some of the factors or the, the concepts that are related to um, the, the um, that they found were important for the poverty reduction um, strategy in this country. So, anyway, thank you very much. Thank you, Denise. And it's messy enough I mean, that we really need a collective intelligence uh, to harness or, and tackle this kind of problems. So, with that, I put on 
again the same slide we had before, but uh, we also wanted to show people that there are a few references links, and uh, we still have a few minutes, then maybe uh, to take questions and comments. Uh, the if, if for people who are being muted, uh, please press one one to raise your hand, and when you're recognized, then press a star three to unmute and make your comment. So uh, I invite people to press one one if you have a comment or a question now, and uh, we will sort of take people uh, as, uh, as, and queue them up. Also, if you uh, you, you are com coming from a uh, line that is not very uh, good, you might also type in your question uh, at the uh, chat session uh, that's offered on the session page. I have someone from the area code 201, uh, so if you unmute yourself, in, in, then uh, go ahead. Person from 201 area code, could you press the star three? We can't hear you yet. Hello? Sorry. Yes. Uh, technology. Okay, we can hear you now. Uh, could you speak yeah. up and please uh, identify yourself? Yes, this is Kevin Hannon. And my, from what I've seen, and um, I think that one of the key the key issues um, is comprehension of information also. Um, and from it, it, just seeing that, that presenting the information, being able to present the uh, visual representation of the information will increase comprehension. And Denise, to your point um, in your slide about uh, the limited ability to understand multiple paths, I think the visualization of the relationships helps communicate those concepts across the multiple paths to make it easier to comprehend more quickly uh, by more people. And, and finally, I think it's important, you know, because I see a real link here between the concepts around folksonomies and ontologies here uh, in that you can collaborate on the information and collaborate on how the information is linked and relates and affects each other. So that's, I, I take that as very important pieces of, of what's been discussed today. Yes, definitely. Um. Peter, we have a question for the second live. Yes, please. Go ahead. So this is from uh, Aurelian Klautus. The question is, your use of the term moral courage infers the study of morality. Are you saying ethnicists should be recruited as part of the KM in decision-making? Okay. Uh, since that, that was from a slide uh, Ted gave, and Ted is not here, maybe I'll invite uh, Jerry, who is Ted's partner and co-founder co -founder and director of uh, the Millennium Project to answer to that. Uh, could, Jerry, are you there? Yes, could you read okay. the last part of that statement about the moral courage? Sure. The question is, um, are you saying that ethnicists should be recruited as part of KM in decision-making? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. 
Now, of course, one I would quickly add a caveat to that. Part of the ultimate concept of the SOFI is that everybody ought to be able to play in making the future better. And the system has got to make it easy for people to do that in the right way that's good for them with their knowledge, with their skills, but then in an accumulative way that that collective intelligence grows through time. So the quick answer is yes to almost anything. But specifically on, the, on that question about ethics is absolutely yes. We even did a study on the future of ethics and, and, and included some on that. Excellent. Okay. Uh, I have another question from a person from 202. Uh, if you, you would uh, do a star three and then identify yourself. Person from 202. Uh, <coughs> Susan Turnbull? Hi, Susan. Yeah, yeah, hi. Um, yeah, my question, I think, builds on the the last two when Pat, actually, the, the whole presentation was superb. Thank, thank you, everyone. But the, um, within the uh, concept, uh, what, what do you call it, concept defining? Vocabulary. Vocabulary. Conceptual defining vocabulary. Yeah, I, I mean, it, when you, when you, Think of that test as being the the child. I'm I'm kind of back to the the comprehension importance, and of course a, a child does extremely well visually, and with two words plus pointing can go a long, long way. So I was even wondering as we start to have some better capabilities visually, just if you think of even two people across the world that are thinking up on, let's say, a, a range of colors that somehow relate to their activity, if there might also be a way to draw upon some better visual analogs that would um, help gain the, the fidelity in the, the focus um, that would, you know, kind of take your, your thinking further. And then thinking even of Negroponte and the one laptop for children, I know you know, music is a part of it. I mean, I'd love to see. And there's a graphic language called Bliss Symbols that perhaps could even be a means that the people that most need to be um, heard in their sets of circumstances via these low-cost laptops if somehow um, whatever me mediation of, of uh, visual and pointing um, could their their input could be um, received as the literacy and as the cultural language differences uh, continue to be mitigated. Yeah, I, I, I agree on both points, Pat. Uh, first, on, on the question of um, uh, integration of your knowledge representation with, with visual representation, yes, uh, that, that that has not really been been done. Uh, very much with the existing work on foundation ontologies. The people in robotics areas are concerned with that sort of thing. And, of course, those who develop uh, games <laughs> have their own built-in uh, ontologies and representations of, of how things move around in space. Um, and, and, and that really, they, we need to do more integration of that, but uh, most of the work that's been done on that has sort of been often in, uh, in a way that's not accessible to those who are building foundation ontologies, unfortunately, but that definitely it's very important. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing about the children, yeah, sure. Uh, if, um, you know, just, just from the pure scientific point of view of trying to understand how language works, 
and, and how concept, people use con, form and use concepts of focusing on the, the most basic vocabulary, I think, makes a great deal of sense. But um, uh, that seems as though it has no practical application because everybody's worried about all these uh, business-oriented things. But your, your, your point is extremely uh, on point, that if you were to be able to do that, you would have a means of connecting uh, at, at some level, even if it's nowhere, even if it's not perfect, it's still connecting at a child's level uh, to children around the world, and especially those in impoverished areas, uh, would, would, would convey and give you the opportunity to convey to them, even at their young age, information that's important to them in, in the way that they can access it. And, and so, sure, if we were able to, to, to move toward that basic language understanding capability, there would, in fact, be practical applications which are not evident from those who are very worried about business-oriented uh, applications. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, I mean, if this laptop um, initiative works, just like in the 4-H, it was the children who were um, sharing the knowledge transfer benefits of improved, um, you know, corn um, uh Seeds um, when when the parents weren't listening to our uh, agriculture, you know, examiners through 4-H. So it is, I, I, there's going to be a really powerful learning transfer um, if and as this begins to to happen. Uh, and basically, a new role for for young children on behalf of supporting their their families and being mediators. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Pat. Uh, since we totally ran over, so I'd better pass this back to Jean to wrap up the session. Thanks, Peter. I'd like to just, first of all, extend a huge thank you to all the people who spoke on our very distinguished panel today and to those who um, took the time to attend and contribute uh, with their questions and their attention today, both in uh, Telecon and in Second Life. So um, our next uh, part of the series will be uh, in January, January 17th, and we'll be looking at um, ontologies for science decision support, um, and that will bring us back to the NASA case study. And uh, so I'll look forward to seeing you then. Anything else, Peter? No, that's it. And thank you very much, everyone, for joining us. And Goodbye. Well, I, I, Peter, I'd have one last comment here. Um, yes. Those who have who have been in any way involved in the actual implementation of Second Life rather than just its use, uh, if you are, if there's any components of that system that um, involve the visual representation, that can be made public uh, so that we can incorporate it into our public ontologies. That would be a, a great benefit. Uh, as I said, we really need more visual representation in the publicly available ontologies, uh, but uh, up to now, most of the important work uh, that's been done there has been proprietary, and to the extent that it can be made public would be very helpful. I, I trust either Jean or Charlie can throw in some light to this question. Yeah, Charlie, do you want to handle it, or...? I'm trying to uh, grasp it. This what well, I'm... the representation that's used. Uh, I, um, uh, you know, the uh, Second Life and, and other game systems um, have have uh, very elaborate internal representations of three-dimensional objects Correct. and how they interact in space. Uh, that sort of thing really has to eventually uh, migrate out to public ontologies. But as I say, as, uh, uh, 
there's not as much as we would like to see in, in the public sphere, and the question is whether there's any any components that they use or any standards that they're they're using that that can be made public. Uh, sort of, I'd like to get hold, get avail and get hold of it. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> yes, yeah, I mean, I, I really don't have the answer to that, but it 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 is such an emerging technology that. Um, that it is a, a very apt area of study that needs to be explored. I don't have the answer myself right now on that one. Okay, well, if the listeners will keep keep, uh, keep it in mind and, and let us know on the Ontolog forum if you see anything that, keep, that comes keep out. Keep pushing them. You, you guys are closer. <laughs> let me just suggest that bliss symbols are a 50-year-old um, visual language that is used in some settings very, very effectively. You can check it out on Wikipedia. Um, I'd love to see, and it, and it is uh, like an open, open domain uh, uh, language, I'd, I'd love to see how that might, could be taken into a virtual world. I'm, I'm not aware whether it has been. Great. It's B-L-I-S-S symbol. Listen. Yeah. Great, thank you for that. I'll research that myself because, uh, yeah, very interested in that. Yep, great. Yeah, I, I'm only familiar with some of the symbology, like um, the military standard 2525. For, for, um... And just quickly, bliss symbols were developed by a uh, chemical engineer and musician who escaped from a Nazi concentration camp, left hmm. China, and saw that, gosh, people who can't speak can actually have a visual means that can perhaps um, uh, oh. work against, you know, the violence that he'd experienced. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Back to Jean. Okay, I mean, I think that's it.